You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage this morning is from John 19 and 20. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went in the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said, he said, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld.
Thank you, Nathan. And good morning, everybody. That's nice. That's really nice energy. Thank you for that. Well, hey, I'm Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to see all of you. Thank you for joining us on this Resurrection Sunday. Before we begin, let's go ahead and pause, bow our heads, and ask God to be with us right now. Father, we come to you, and we ask that you would teach us now, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would lift your name above every single name right now, that you would make yourself beautiful and glorious to our hearts, that you would capture our mind's attention right now, that we might give ourselves wholly to you. We want to approach you, God, now, asking that you teach us, that you mend us, that you heal us, that you lead us. We approach your throne asking for this with confidence, knowing that your very right hand is your son. You look to him to know that we are innocent, that we are righteous and blameless because we have been given his perfect obedience on our record. We thank you for the cross. It is our innocence, our blamelessness. We have an advocate at your right hand. We thank you for the resurrection. It is our anchor of hope. We look forward to the day, Jesus where you return and make all things new and you rid ourselves and our world of sin and sadness and tears. We long for that day, Jesus. Until then, hold us fast. And until then, cause us to love you, to follow you, and to be a blessing to others. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Taylor stole my thunder, okay? I was going to do that thing that he did at the beginning. But look, some of you got here late so you don't know what I'm talking about even. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say Jesus is risen, and you're going to say he is risen indeed. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. I love it. We gather on Easter Sunday along with Christians all across the globe, all across millennia, because the tomb is empty. And nothing since then has been the same. Now look, I love the Bible. I felt a call to ministry when I was in seventh grade, eighth grade. I just started reading the Bible on my own, reading the Bible with my friends, and I just fell in love with it. I had never encountered anything like the things I was reading. It's a magnificent work of literature. The authors of the Bible, they're brilliant minds. And I love, specifically, the Gospel of John. Because John is this creative theologian. In his recording of Jesus' life and ministry and his account of Jesus' life, John deposits these tiny details here and there. And if you're reading with a sensitive eye, if you're reading with an inquisitive mind to ponder these details, what you're going to find is these details, though small, are really, really significant. These details, though small, carry within them a message in and of themselves. And so that's what I really want to do today. I'm not going to preach every single word that was read by Nathan a few minutes ago. What I want to do is I just want to swoop in and look at some of these small details that this creative mind, John, Jesus' beloved disciple, writes in his account of Jesus' resurrection. So we're going to focus on the empty tomb. It's all about the empty tomb and everything that surrounds it in this story. So let's go ahead and do that. First, let's talk about the newness of the tomb. The tomb, it being empty, means that everything has changed. There's been a seismic shift within the fabric of reality itself. I want to show us that. First, go with me to verse 41. And you'll notice that it says that Jesus' tomb is in a garden. In that place where he was crucified... There was a garden. He's cru- he is buried right nearby where he's crucified. Later on, in chapter 20, verse 15, if you jump there with me, it says that Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for a gardener. It says she supposes him to be a gardener. Now, now the Bible, it begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. 
And John, he's writing the book of Revelation. He, he captures and portrays the end of time when Jesus returns to restore all things and make all things new. He depicts it like garden imagery, garden imagery that matches the very beginning. So what we're supposed to see is that what we're heading towards when Jesus returns, what he's going to restore to us is the Edenic life. Life in the garden. Now, what is that? What is life in the garden? What's so significant and special about the Garden of Eden? It was life with God. Life in his presence. Living before his smile day by day, moment by moment. Unhindered fellowship with our Father. That's the Edenic life. But here... In the middle of time, not the end of time, the tomb is located in a garden, and Jesus is the gardener. There's another detail in verse 41 that's significant, small but significant. It says there's a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, an untouched, unoccupied tomb. Now, theologians say this is significant. It's not just John recording real history, it's a theological detail. What we're supposed to see is that this recalls the very beginning, when the earth was formless and void. Remember, it was in the darkness of an undeveloped world that God fashioned creation. Out of nothing, God makes something, matter, raw material, and out of that raw material and that matter, God fashions and shapes and crafts the world that we live in. So just that the world at one time was raw material that God harnessed into new creation, so this tomb is an untouched, unoccupied place that God brings about new life. There's parallels between the beginning and this moment in time. So you can see John, who's writing this account, he's heavy on creation imagery. Even just in these few verses, he wants us to connect the dots, doesn't he? He wants us to associate this empty tomb with new creation. So the question I ask is why? What's John getting at? What's the message here? Jesus' resurrection means joining him, following him, Uniting yourself to him is like living in a new creation. He is this new Adam presiding over a new creation. The garden and the gardener and the untouched tomb are small details but significant details. They mean this. Already, not then, not just in the future, not at the end of time, but already right here, right now, in the middle of history, we can access the Edenic life, the life that is to come is already upon us. And remember, what's so significant about the Garden of Eden? It's life with God. His nearness. Living in His presence before His smile. That's not a future reality only. That is a present opportunity that has been made available by the empty tomb. Life with God. In His presence. Have you ever thought about that? That that's like what Christianity is. That's what Jesus has literally restored to us. You go throughout your life, your day with God with you, living in you. You are back in the garden already. That's what Jesus has won for you by his death and by his resurrection. One, one of my favorite verses in all the book of Psalms, is Psalm 1611. It says this, you make known to me the path of life. What's the path of life? 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Walking with Jesus, the Father's nearness, its fullness of joy, its pleasures forevermore. That's the book of Psalms. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul says that, that this experience of walking with God, it's knowing the height, the breadth, the depth, the length of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and you're filled with that fullness of God. Jesus says it's like this, having rivers of water flowing in you, healing you, nourishing you. That's what his presence is like in you and with you and all around you. Life with Jesus is living in the presence of God, which means this, It's a shift. If you believe this, okay, it's a shift away from superficial thrills, settling for sin, counterfeit gods, idolatry, vain glories. It's a shift away from living in a gray world to living in rest and peace and joy. So now do you see why we say the new tomb means that everything has changed and nothing will be the same? Your very destiny. You've been created to know and love God. That has been restored to you, afforded to you in the empty tomb. And once you get this, seriously, once this clicks, Christianity takes on a whole new shape and a whole new vibrancy. It's no longer Christianity. I hope, I hope you're not making this mistake. Christianity is not, what am I doing? What am I doing? How am I performing? How can I clean myself up? How can I impress God? How can I bring something to the table? Before, Christianity is not concerned about that. Christianity is this, knowing God, enjoying God, living in his presence. That changes us and everything else takes care of itself. The focus shifts shifts away from what I am doing for God towards how can I enjoy him and be renewed by him day by day. This is the newness of the empty tomb. Everything has changed. So listen, there's two ways of life before you now. There's a crossroads for each one of us. There's two ways of life before you today. There's the life of self-renewal and there's the life of resurrection renewal. The life of self-renewal is this. Let me describe it. It's without question embracing our desires, just doing what we feel, doing what we want, doing these desires that, that just are so strong. We just follow them. And then what we do is we pour all of our energy into realizing those desires, and then we locate someone or we find a community who's going to get behind those desires, applaud us, and support us in pursuing those things. So the equation of self-renewal is desires met plus Approval of others means I will be happy. The life of resurrection renewal is the complete opposite. It denies personal desires. It pours my energy into loving God. And it looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. The equation here of the resurrection renewal life is deny desires. Plus, look to Jesus means I am joyful. Now, that might not sound very appealing to you, and I get that. But if you're committed to self-renewal, let me tell you what's at the end of that journey. Madness. (laughs) Because if you live according to your desires, just what you want at all time, you're going to be torn between a million different things, torn in a million different directions. Because one thing we cannot stand is to feel that our life is full of contradictions and incoherence. 
You know what I mean? If we just follow whatever we want at any given time without any restraint and any accountability, then what's life going to be like? Just being pulled in so many different directions. You'll never arrive at contentment. You will never arrive at peace. And then you want to pour that energy into fulfilling those desires and realizing those desires. But if it doesn't work, if there's no end in sight, then you're just going to exhaust yourself. And then if you rely on others to affirm and applaud you, you're constantly performing, constantly people-pleasing, never really loving another person. You're always using them to gain from what? Gain what from them? Happiness. So you might think that self-renewal sounds nice, getting what I want pouring myself into what I want, surrounding myself with people who are going to get behind me and support me and enable me. But really, what you're going to find out is the path of self-renewal is actually the path to self-destruction. Jesus' resurrection means a new way of life is open to us where we can experience the nearness of God if we will deny ourselves, spend our energies on loving God, rely on Jesus for guidance. We will have something better than happiness. We will have joy and likely with happiness thrown in. The vision of Christianity is that the more that you get lost in God, and fellowship with him, caught up into his love, caught up into his glory, the more you lose yourself and the greater joy you will experience because now you're freed from the tyranny of your own conflicting desires. You're freed from the rat race of pleasing people. With your eyes off yourself and your soul's attention on God, you live in a state of joy. David Brooks is an author. He writes in a book called The Second Mountain this. Happiness involves a victory of the self, an expansion of the self. Happiness comes as we move towards our goals, when things go our way. You get a big promotion, you graduate from college, your team wins the Super Bowl, you have a delicious meal. Happiness often has to do with some success, some new ability, or some heightened sensual pleasure. Joy tends to involve some transcendence of self. It's when the skin barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together. Joy is present when mother and baby are gazing adoringly in each other's eyes. When a hiker is overwhelmed by beauty in the woods and feels at one with nature. When a gaggle of friends are dancing deliriously in unison. Joy deeper than happiness, more lasting than happiness, more durable than happiness. Joy happens when we get so caught up in something more significant than ourselves that we lose sight of ourselves, lose self-awareness, and just revel. We get caught up. The nearness of God, the Edenic life, the thing that you were created and destined for, living before the smile of God. That's what the empty tomb has won for you. Yesterday, I went to the aquarium with Harper and our family. And I've been to the aquarium before, but I'm not going to lie. I was pretty excited. And I got there. And I saw a lot of cool stuff. And my excitement lasted for like seven minutes. And then I got really tired. And then I just got bored. But you know who didn't get bored? You know who just was sparkling eyes, smiling slowly every minute of the day? Harper. 
my nearly three-year-old. And when we get to the end, I'm like trying to book it and get her just to finish so we can go. I want Shake and Shack. I'm hungry, you know. She looks at me, Daddy, more, more. I think we've, we've gotten so accustomed to hearing this, that Jesus has won for you relationship with God, that it's lost its awe, and it's lost its wonder. We've grown up too much. It's lost its power on us. Return to that childlike faith. Return to the, to the first joys, the first love of, of, of your encounter with God. This is what he invites you into, the nearness of God. It's amazing. This is life now, guys. And it's not a gimmick. And this isn't just idealism. Truly, you can know the height, depth, breadth, length of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That can be your quest in life, to get caught up in that. The empty tomb invites us into newness, but also declares something. The empty tomb declares something over you. And some of the details in John's story show us this. I want to draw your attention to what Mary Magdalene sees when she enters the tomb in John 20, 11, and 12. Look there. John writes, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped. She inched closer into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now you have to visualize this, okay? This image should come up in your mind of an angel, two angels, sitting where Jesus was laid, one where his head was, one where his feet were. Now, that image, if you're thinking of it, if you were Jewish, what would conjure up in your mind right away is the image of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, with its lid over it, had two golden angels, two cherubim forged at the right and the left, the foot and the head. That's the image that John wants us to recall here. That's the image he wants to bring us to mind. And it's really significant because the Ark of the Covenant was where? It was placed in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, where the great high priest, the high priest could enter only once a year after purifying himself intensely. There he would atone for the sin of people. There God would forgive his people on one single day of the year, the day of atonement. But here's Mary Magdalene, a woman, not purifying herself and not on the day of atonement, stooping in, inching closer to the place where Jesus' body was buried, which looks a whole lot like the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. What is the point? What's the message of the empty tomb that we don't have to be a high priest. We don't have to clean up ourselves. We don't have to do it once a year. We can approach our Father, our Creator, whenever we please, whenever we want, because Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection has fully atoned, permanently forgiven. No more cleaning up. No No more purifying. Not just once a year. Moment by moment, we are acceptable before God. Romans 4 puts it really nicely. It says this, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is Jesus' righteousness. His righteousness will be counted to us who Jesus died for and who was raised for our justification. What this means is when Jesus was raised, That righteousness that Jesus has 
that he transfers to us in his death, the resurrection ratifies it, verifies it, seals it, makes it a done deal. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that the cross is the great exchange. My sin on Jesus, his righteousness given to me. Wow. My sin, my guilt, my shame, my dishonor done away with, and I've been given the perfect, spotless resume of Jesus. And the resurrection sealed the deal, made it so. The tomb is empty. No more cleaning up. No more going through ritual. Not just once a year. Whenever we please, we are acceptable before God. This is the declaration from the empty tomb. Are you ready? This is the declaration. You are a child of the Father. You are accepted. You are righteousness. Do you remember when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River and the voice from heaven, God's voice from heaven shouts, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? The empty tomb means that that's the declaration over you and I now. We are the beloved children of God in whom God is well pleased. Wow, you are a child of God. Now let me ask you a question. Does a child need to make an appointment with his father? Does a child need to somehow work, you know, work, impress his dad, clean himself up before he can come to his dad? No, not, not a good dad. This might sound too good to be true, even scandalous. But because Jesus has given us his righteousness and we are now sons and daughters by the grace of God, our birthright, which means what we are entitled to, is God's presence whenever we need him and whenever we please. Not because we're so good, not because we have it all together, but because Jesus is so good, because he had it all together, and then he gives us that perfection. Now, if you examine this whole story, you see this forgiveness, this Amazing reconciliation personified. Look at, at chapter 19, verse 38. You meet Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. We also meet Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. And it's interesting, in John's gospel, night, darkness, means unbelief. John's highly symbolic. So what, what John wants us to see is both of these men are called out of secret called out of darkness, called out of the night of unbelief into more, into reconciliation. Now, the resurrection hasn't happened yet at that point in the story, but John's tipping his hand and giving us this anticipatory truth of the resurrection, which is this. We no longer need to live in the darkness. We no longer need to hide from God. We no longer need to live in secret and cower in shame. Our sins, our regrets, they do not define us. We can now come <clears throat> into the light. With no hesitation, we will not be turned away because the great exchange has happened. The empty cross declares that we are forgiven. Another example. You want, you want another example that this is true? Look what Jesus says about the disciples. You remember the disciples, they hear that, that this tomb is empty. Peter, John, run to the tomb, see it's true. They run back to their boys, run back to the disciples. They let them know. And Jesus tells Mary Magdalene this in chapter 20, verse 17. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now here is what's astounding. These men 
were Jesus' best friends who abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. They abandoned him to save their own skin. At the moment when it mattered most, they turned on him. But what does Jesus call them? What title does he give them? Go and tell my brothers. That I'm returning to who? My father and your father. My God and your God. Jesus holds nothing against them. And more than that, he elevates them to a position that he alone holds. Did you see that? Brothers, which means they're Jesus' brothers, which means they have an equal status with him because he is the son. And look, this grace, it's not only for the disciples, it's for you and I. We, like them, now are siblings of Jesus. We are children of God. That's our status. We have the right to approach our Father because we, like Jesus, are his sons. This is why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is our Father who loves us and accepts us because when He looks at us, He sees nothing different than the very righteousness of His own Son. Not our shame, not our sin, not our mistakes, not held against us. As far as the East is from the West, those things have been separated from us. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You hear that? You get that? The most important thing about you and who you are is what comes to your mind when you think about God. So if you think God is fuming, if you think God's just waiting for you to mess up, if you think God is just disinterested and impersonal, you'll never approach him. But if you think God is your father, then you do what any child does. You melt into his arms. If you think Jesus is weak, if you think Jesus is just one of many great teachers, if you think Jesus is judgmental, you'll never follow him. But if you think Jesus is your elder brother, who shares with you his shoulder, who shares with you and your sufferings and your friend, then he's your strength. Then you follow him. The empty tomb speaks and says, there's renewal, there's a new status, you're forgiven. But lastly, and I love this, this is a good way to end. The empty tomb also has a legacy. A legacy that we are invited to integrate into. So go with me to 20. Chapter 20, 21 through 23. The risen Jesus, he appears to these apostles and he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Pretty weird passage, huh? Let me summarize what this is saying. Jesus is commissioning these men. He's commissioning them to go and establish the church, to bring into existence what we know as the church. He tells them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He imparts them the Spirit of God until they're permanently indwelled at the day of Pentecost. Then he says, he gives them authority and responsibility to forgive, to deny entry into the church. 
This is why in Ephesians 2, Paul says that the apostles and prophets, they're the foundation of the church with Christ being the cornerstone. The church, this here, is built on Jesus' death and resurrection and then the apostles' ministry and their doctrine. So Jesus, what he's doing here is saying, go start this legacy, men, friends, brothers. Go start what we know as the church. And you know what Jesus says about the church in Matthew 16? It's amazing. This is the legacy. I hope this gets you. I hope this seizes your imagination and makes you want this. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, gates are defense mechanisms, which means the church is moving towards hell. We are triumphing against hell. We are taking ground. We often think that, oh, the devil's winning. Oh, things are going so poorly and so bad. That's not the right way to see it. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against what these men have started and what we are invited into, the church. Now, Western culture, hyper-individualistic. We usually don't think in terms of legacy. We usually think in terms of importance. We usually don't think, how can I take part in something bigger than myself? We usually think, am I important? Am I significant? Now, look, we all want to be important, and we don't celebrate heroes, okay? We celebrate celebrities, don't we? Heroes live and die for the sake of something bigger than individual glory, but celebrities promote themselves, Yeah, those are the people we follow. Those are the people we want to be like. Those are the people that we build our life after, right? Let me just say something really solemn that might upset you, but something that our individualism doesn't want to recognize, but it's true. And the sooner that we believe it, the sooner we'll be set free from the crushing weight of individualism. So let me tell you something here. You will die and be forgotten. And so will I. So why not make our lives count for something? Why not participate in the cause that will conquer hell itself and count for eternity? I mean, listen, guys, I want to appeal to you. Don't you want to live for something bigger than yourself? Aren't you tired and bored of self-promotion? Are you bothered that the highest cause of your life is yourself? Jesus is calling us into a cause bigger than ourselves that stretches back eons and stretches into future glory. Jesus is calling us into this legacy that his death has launched, his disciples brought into existence, and that now we carry the church. So now, do you know what your first step should be? Do you want to live for something bigger than yourself? Do you know what your first step should be? Back in chapter 20, verse 1, again, small details that John puts in the story, but of high, high significance. He says this, Now it was the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the temple early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It was on the first day of the week that this happened, on a Sunday, which is why immediately after the resurrection, immediately after the empty tomb, Christians started gathering to worship the risen Jesus on Sundays. They'd worship, they'd study together, they'd sing together, then they'd have a meal together in commemoration of their risen king. On Sunday, 
immediately Christians started gathering. Let me show you something here. First Corinthians 16, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. Acts 20, Luke writes this, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, breaking bed. And then John, in Revelation chapter 1, says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So see, immediately afterwards, what becomes the rhythm? of the Christian life. We gather on the resurrection day, Sunday, the first day of the week, which became known as the Lord's Day, to gather with the people of the empty tomb is the first and most important step of joining this legacy, to gather, to worship, to make what we're doing here the natural rhythm of our life. Now you might say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Or I don't need to go to church to be in this legacy. And I would counter and say, you need to if you're going to do it well. Let me ask you. Let me ask you. Think about this. Does your Christianity feel like it's prevailing against the gates of hell? Do you feel like that's your life? Do you feel like you're living as more than a conqueror? Do you feel like your life is marked by victory? Alone? On my own? (laughs) We cannot take the gates of hell. This, friends, is why we gather, because we need power poured into us, because we don't have it in ourselves. I don't have it in me. The longer I live, you know what I've realized? (laughs) The more I need. The longer I live, the more I need. I need encouragement. I need other people. I need to be reminded constantly of what is true. Now, you would think it would be the other way around, that the longer we live, we become more resilient and more stable, and more self-assured. And to some degree that happens because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But truthfully, the longer we live, the more self-awareness we gain. And so we know how much of a mess we are. We know how much gross stuff is actually operating in our hearts at any given time. We know how left to our own selves, our own devices, things will tend towards chaos. We need others. We need the truth. We need to gather because alone we will not make it. What I need more than anything is God's word. What I need more than anything is to hear other Christians singing words of hope along with me. What I need more than anything is to unite in prayers of confession and praise and pleading with other weak and wounded souls. What I need more than anything is to take the Lord's Supper with other forgiven and broken people. What I need more than anything is to be forged with a community of people under the banner of the gospel. I need, I need, so I'm going to join this legacy. How about you? Do you want to live for something bigger than yourself? Make your life count. Join the legacy, gather, be empowered, and march forward against the gates of hell with us. I close with this question for you. Do you feel like the empty grave has changed your life? Do you know how to find out? Let, let, me, let me tell you how you find out if that's the case. A little self-study here, self-examination here. If there was clear definitive proof that came out tomorrow that the resurrection was a fraud that it never happened, that it was rigged or something. If there was just clear, definitive proof 
that this is all a lie that came out tomorrow, which won't happen, but let's say it did hypothetically. Would your life actually look any different? I mean, would there be this massive shift towards just like, all right, I can do whatever I want now, do whatever I please now, my life is, is my own. Like, would your life look any different if you, if you found out that this wasn't true? And if that's the case in your self-study, if you feel like your life would look no different, then the empty grave has not touched your life. I invite you into this, into what the empty grave is offering you, the presence of God. You were created to, to know and enjoy God forever. The empty tomb invites you to that. The empty tomb is declaring over you and inviting you to be forgiven, to have your sin fully paid for, to be reconciled with your Father, not because of how good you are. <laughs> Thank God for that, but because of how good He is. And then into a legacy that will long outlive each and every one of us. The empty, the empty grave, it's changed everything. Nothing has been the same since. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. Amen. Let's pray. Our great Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you for your grace. We were in the darkness. We, on our own, lost, alienated, separated from you. But you sent your Son on a mission to pull us out of the mire and the muck and the dirt and brokenness and our sin. We love you. And we thank you in your name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.